It's Pi Augustine, your Division One candidate for Ipswich. My plan is for a community that is vibrant and attracts world investment, a community that is connected with the state-of-the-art transport system, a community that cares for our people and environment at a time of need. Division One needs a councillor that has the energy and motivation to get things done. A community champion. Find out more about me on my Facebook page, Pi Augustine for Division One. This ad was approved by Pi Augustine candidate. Ipswich deserves strong and stable leadership you know you can trust. I'm Mayor Teresa Harding, and as your Mayor, Ipswich is once again a city that businesses are proud to invest in and families love to call home. To keep our city moving forward, I'm committed to reducing cost of living pressures, expanding our road and transport networks, delivering more for our suburbs, and boosting investment in grassroots sports in our community. So vote one Teresa Harding for Mayor for sustainable growth for Ipswich. Authorised by T Harding, 264 South Station Road, Raceview. Coming up. Heartache in Ipswich. As the Bremer River reaches its peak, hundreds flee to evacuation centres. We've got um, virtually 24 hours to save as many um, homes and as many people as possible. Your parents tell you about 74 and you go, well, you never see that again, but, you know, it happens, I guess. So. Seeing horses standing on roofs, swimming, trying to save their lives, not allowing horses, there's cattle. Thousands of people have been evacuated from their homes. There are five evacuation centres set up across the city and uh, they're basically people trying to get out while they can with as much as they can take. And we saw scenes of people wading through floodwaters trying to get out what treasured possessions they have left before everything is swamped. That was 10 years ago, as seen and heard on 7 News. Ipswich CBD and flood-prone suburbs were being swallowed by rising floodwaters predicted to be the same or worse than 1974. It's Monday, January 11, 2021, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Welcome to Ipswich Today, which acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics. People-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. Ten years ago, the morning of Tuesday, January 11, 2011, Ipswich woke to the news the city was in for a major flood to rival 1974. It had been raining on and off for what felt like months. The ground was soaked. It just couldn't take any more. To back this up, from the Weather Bureau's National Climate Centre, there were six major rain events during late November to mid-January, concentrated on the periods of November 28 to December 4, December 7 to 13, December 19 and 20, December 23 to 28, and January 10 to 12. The highest daily totals observed in the Bureau's regular network were 298mm at Peachester, just over 282 at Mullaney on January 10, while the highest three-day totals were 648.4 at Mount Glorious and 617.5 at Peachester. Intense short-period falls also occurred during the event, with one-hour falls of more than 60mm on January 10 and 11 at numerous locations north and west of Brisbane. I remember the rain continued to fall on the morning of Tuesday, January 11, 2011. The Weather Bureau issued several flood warnings by lunchtime, each with a different expected peak. 
and each came with its accompanying council flood map showing the need for urgent evacuations. Everyone had already seen the devastation in Toowoomba and the Lockyer Valley. It was Ipswich's turn next, and it's fair to say most people did not believe it would flood where they live, putting their trust in Wyvernhoe Dam to protect the city from a repeat of 1974. As council and other volunteers mobilised to establish evacuation centres, it was a solemn atmosphere in the mayor's office as council officers updated flood maps. Sandbags were little more than a feel-good, as they would not hold back the magnitude of water predicted to peak that evening or the next day. The peak came the following day at 19.4 metres at the town bridge. Ipswich was underwater again, and levels remained high as blue sky appeared by January 13. Former Councillor Cheryl Bromage was yet to become Deputy Local Disaster Management Chair. The previous, Division 6, which Cheryl represented, included Brassel and North Ipswich, which were heavily impacted by the flood. The forecast and flood warnings were being updated almost hourly and were very grim on the morning of the 11th of January. Cheryl Bromage, can you remember what you were doing and what was going through your mind on that day? Well, Alan, it actually started before Christmas because if you remember, we had a really, really wet December and the local government disaster group actually stood up before Christmas due to the rain and the forecasts that were coming through. So I actually took the opportunity to sit in as an observer to actually see what was going on, see what the predictions were and just see how that group ran. So I was sort of prepping up. And then by the 11th, as we knew it was starting to get a little bit more uh, intense in the rain, I actually took the time and went down to the planning department, got some local maps made up of my area in Division 6 with three flood layers on it. And then I door knocked relentlessly for two days to give people a bit of an idea in these low-lying areas to pack up and get out. It's a good thing you did that because I think we were all in the false belief that we were protected by Wyvernhoe and 1974 couldn't happen again. Did you have people just not believing you? Yeah, we even had a person, an elderly gent, that I had to actually call the police and it was waist-deep water on myself. And as you know, I'm six foot tall. He's sitting inside his house that was up on stump. He said he'd been through 74 Wyvernhoe was going to save him, that's why it was he was staying and that he wasn't going to move, that I actually had to call the police to actually get him out of the house. And within days, it was over the roof of that house. So, you know, if the police weren't there to help me with that intervention to get that man out, who knows what would have happened. Unlike 1974, this was a, this was a calm flood. It was the water backing up from the Brisbane River as, as Wyvernhoe was opened, uh, the gates were opened full. Can you describe that feeling in the community that morning as waters were rising? As waters were rising, people were still a little bit of confusion because no one knew when they said, oh, it's going to be 15 metres or 12 metres at the David Trumpy Bridge. People in the community don't understand what that is within their local area Mm. and within the 
the Hyde area. So there were sort of confusion. They were contacting me and also trying to call the call centre saying, well, you know, they're now reporting that it's like 12 metres at David Trumpy. I live in Sydney Street at Brussel, which is a known flutter. What does that mean for me? So that was some of the confusion because people were giving reports that the river height was going to be certain metres at a certain location. They just could not work out where they lived, what that meant. Ten years later, do you think that issue has been resolved? I don't think so. Um, there's people who lived through uh, 74, then we had 2011, and then we had 2013. Yes, a touch and go, that one. It was. Some of the same places got hit again. But a lot of those people were just rebuilt and had to face it all again, which was really sad. But I think social media played a massive role in getting information out, and that's what we found, especially with the media team in council who worked all through the night with us to get that message out there, get it timely, but also the feedback from the residents about where roads were closed so we could actually send crews out to put barriers up as well. I think 2013 was a much more efficient uh, machine, if you like, behind the scenes getting that information out, hot on the heels of 2011. Just sticking with 2011, though, Cheryl, the flood evacuation centres were being set up, some by council, some by the community. Now, Brassel and North Ipswich was virtually isolated. What did you do? Okay, what I did was uh, got in touch. I sort of looked for the best location that had a hall that was sort of had shower facilities, toilet facilities, and was high that could be flood free. And I liaised with the principal of St Joseph's Primary School because their hall is right on top of the hill. It's right near the main road, opposite the the radio station. So if anything needed to happen, we could go across to them across the road. And I actually uh, looked after 120 people there. Residents in the community come and gave me a hand in there to feed them. The most interesting thing is the amount of animals that we actually took in as well because people wouldn't leave or stay unless we allowed them to keep their animals. You talked about the need to feed people. Obviously, there were no supplies at the school. How was it organised that you had enough food? Well, the manager down at Woolworths here at Brussel, who I knew in my role as counsel, I came down and asked him, you know, is there anything that he can provide to the evacuation centre to help us out? And because they had no power, no generators, he provided a lot of meat, vegetables, bread, anything that he could actually give us was supplied to the evacuation centre to help us. So the Brussels Shopping Centre was absolutely amazing for what they provided. The bakery down at Riverlink cooked loaves of bread for us and a milk truck would pull up and actually just hand out litres of milk to the people to help us in the evacuation centre. But the most amazing thing was a chef who at the time was working at Brothers Leagues Club, couldn't get home. He just finished his shift. He pulled in and said, can I help? So he actually was making gourmet meals for everybody in the evacuation centre and they said that uh, they hadn't been well, so well looked after in their life. Recovery was long and slow with many heartwarming stories. Do you, do you have a couple that stick in your mind? Um, probably some of the people that I evacuated out of uh, Walkeraka, they actually were able to get all their furniture and everything else. So they were actually able to move back in and put some walls up. 
uh, we actually, Jip Rock was sort of like uh, gold bars here. It was very hard to locate because everyone needed some Jip Rock for their walls. But just some of the community groups that I was involved with, we cleaned out the units down at uh, My High Grove at Brassel. I can still, to this day, I still can't eat uh, chocolate mousse because uh, <laughs> of things that I see. Um, but it was sort of like six months later when I found people still in their houses because mm. they didn't have insurance enough for accommodation were actually living in tents inside of their structure that had no walls, concrete floors. So we were able to find them some beds, at least to get the kids up off the floor and to try and help them out. And I know a lot of the church groups helped them locate and actually put up some gyp rock to give these people some, you know, sense of norm- normality really yes. because it was coming into winter by this stage and these houses still weren't rebuilt with walls and it was just visually cold for these poor people. And I, I don't think a lot of these people would ever get over it again. It was a long, slow haul, and and you couldn't rebuild straight away. The advice was you had to let the house dry out once you removed the the soggy gyprock walls. You're, you're right, Cheryl. People will will this will stick in their mind for uh, for many many years to come. Do you think any major lessons have been learnt since 2011? Um, I think you know as time goes by, people get complacent, and which is the sad thing. And I think now if people know that. Water is going to rise. Um, we taught a lot of people who live along the Bundamba Creek area that floods uh, frequently how to read the gauges that are on the bomb site because it actually allows them to have a little bit of control of their destiny mm. because as time goes by, people are not there to, to sort of give them a phone call and say this is what the height's going to be. So we did a bit of an education with people who live in the low-lying areas about what to look for, what height on gauges um, that they need to be aware of and when they need to be prepared to pack up and leave. So there was that separate education apart from the wider community education that took part to actually help these people because I think if you're in control a little bit more of your situation, you actually feel a little bit better. And the issue is you've got a constantly moving population in and out of the city, so it, it obviously needs to be an annual event, an annual, an annual education program, much like um, cyclone season in North Queensland, where the reminders come out every November. They sort of do a bit of a project about flood it and forget it and some little storm season preparation, but not to the degree because you have to remember, Ipswich won't be only affected by flood, there's fire, there's a lot of other sort of risks that exist in the city. You've got coal mines, things could collapse, things like that. Mm. So I think there needs to be a wider education about what the potential risks are in the city, where are the hot spots that these will happen. And that's why within the disaster management plan, there is certain plans for certain suburbs, but I don't think the wider community are actually aware that they're there. Because, you know, they are geographically designed for those particular suburbs. Along with thousands of other residents, Ipswich Councillor Paul Tully experienced the very worst of the 2011 flood. 
with the two-level family home at Goodna submerged to the roof. Goodna was particularly hard hit and succumbed to the adjacent raging Brisbane River. Channel 7 accompanied Councillor Tully in a tinny through local streets to inspect his home before the floodwaters fully receded. He was asked moments before seeing his flood-damaged family home how he was feeling. You know, I've, I've kept myself busy for the last couple of days, you know, about a couple hundred metres from my place. I don't know what to expect. Um, this is really sad for my wife and kids who are still away overseas. Oh, that's got out of the roof up the top, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, that's right up to the roof. So everything's gone, the whole house will have to be stripped down. And I don't know if the stuff I've packed together will survive. Two years later in 2013, a more upbeat Paul Tully described the recovery progress. Well, it's been a very long two years, uh, but people have been very resilient, very thankful for the support they've had. There's still financial and emotional problems that people have, but, but we're slowly getting there. So how does the community now move forward? Well, it's important that we do move forward. We didn't have any recognition of today because we want to move forward as, as a community. But we can't forget what's happened in the past two years, but we'll make it with the support of Queenslanders and all Australians. On January 13, 2011, Premier Anna Bly reminded us that Queenslanders are tough. Can I say to Queenslanders everywhere, uh, wherever you are, uh, if you are, and I, so, many, so many places to list, if you're in central Queensland, if you're in southwest Queensland, if you're in western Queensland, if you're in the Burnett region, the Darling Downs, Toowoomba, the Lockyer Valley, Ipswich or Brisbane, all of those places have been affected by floods. And I say to every one of the people in those areas and to Queenslanders in other parts of the state, as we weep for what we have lost and as we grieve for family and friends and we confront the challenge that is before us, I want us to remember who we are. We are Queenslanders. We're the people that they breed tough north of the border. We're the ones that they knock down and we get up again. I said earlier this week that this weather may break our hearts and it is doing that, but it will not break our will. And in the coming weeks and the coming months, we are going to prove that beyond any doubt. Together, we can pull through this and that's what I'm determined to do and with your help, we can achieve it. Thank you. Current Ipswich Mayor, Theresa Harding, remembers exactly where she was as floodwaters were rising in an air of impending doom. Mayor Harding, please describe where you were and what you recall was going through your mind 10 years ago. It was just um, an incredible amount of water and just the damage. Uh, I was working at Rathbase Amberley at the time, working in the team, leading the team to decommission the F-111 aircraft. I had three staff who lived in Bundamba who were impacted. And obviously we were, you know, we wanted to do everything we could to help our work colleagues. So we went around to their homes and with the sugar soap and buckets and cloths and mops and brooms and um, did our best to clean those homes so that the uh, insurance inspectors could come out. So you were genuinely part of the Mud Army? Oh, definitely. Um, it was such an emotional time for everyone, but for people whose houses were flooded, my goodness, it was absolutely devastating. And we all remember that terrible smell of the mud. Yes, mm. especially days afterwards. What are your lasting memories of the 2011 flood? 
because it's the impact of that brown mud everywhere. Um, but also, I guess, in reflection, you can actually look at how much we all pull together, our community groups, our Chamber of Commerce, but everyone in town was just helping each other. And it was done anonymously. People just wanted to help each other. It was really lovely to see our community come together so well. Ever since then, there's been talk of flood-proofing the city. There's a lot of armchair experts who think it's quite an easy process, but in reality, it's not possible for several reasons. First of all, the geography of Ipswich is so complicated. Isn't it better to talk in terms of making areas that are flood-prone more resistant to damage? Alan, we have a famous author in Ipswich, Margaret Cook, who wrote a book called A River with a City Problem. Um, we're one of those cities that sits on the this river plain, um, which is a floodplain, and so we really need to look at ways that we can, I guess, mitigate floods and work with it as best we can. I don't think we can ever flood-proof our city, but we certainly can improve things so the impact of floods um, are minimised. There's been a lot of ongoing work for the Ipswich Integrated Catchment Plan. Where is that at right now? Uh, the, the community consultation for the Ipswich Integrated Catchment Plan um, has now been completed and it's now with, that plan is now with council officers and will be briefed to the councillors very soon. It was really a... Um, we had to do this as part of the Queensland Flood Commission of Inquiry and it's also part of the Brisbane River Strategic Flood Plain Management Plan which was released back in April 2019. So I know we councils are very eager to see the final plan and also to share that with the people of Ipswich. Since 2011, Mayor Harding, the city has really got its act together and so have many other cities who were flooded in 2011 and that evacuation centres are now earmarked permanently and can be implemented at a moment's notice. Under COVID, things would have to be different yet again. You had a bit of a dry run with the storm on October 31st. How did that go? Yes, obviously evacuation centres in a time of COVID can't really happen. And we got to see that during the recent uh, Springfield Lakes hailstorm where we set up a community recovery centre so people could certainly come in, register, uh, charge up their phones, uh, get get a, a meal. But also we had support services there. We had the Department of Housing, Department of Communities, um, insurance companies, Insurance Council of Australia, as well as um, people um, um, councillors to help people through that process. So we had to really change how we support the community based on COVID. Ipswich gets divided up into several localities, all flood-bound. So going forward, I think the community can rely on a much more efficient uh, deployment of evacuation centres. Would you agree? I think so. I think also the, the council and state government organisations are more adapt to how we do that, but also I think it's the community knows as well. It's not a long distant memory. It just happened 10 years ago. Mayor Teresa Harding, thanks for talking with Ipswich today. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. Walter Williams is a long-term Ipswich resident. He can see the Bremer River from his front deck of the family home. It's normally a calm and peaceful outlook. When I caught up with Walter last week, I began by asking about the morning of the 11th of January 10 years ago, and could he remember what he was doing and what was going through his mind? Well, I was actually asleep, to tell you the truth, and we had a rough night with it. Of course, you go to bed not knowing what you're going to wake up to. Um, But we got a phone call early in the morning from then-councillor Andrew Antonelli, who'd been keeping us in touch with river levels rising, etc. Um, saying, mate, get out. Don't dilly-dally. Just get out now because uh, they're going to release the floodgates. And we went, you're kidding. 
And you, like many others, were thinking Wyvernhoe would save the day. It was a lot to take in. It was. I mean, yeah, look, when we bought the property, we knew about 1974. We kind of found out halfway through the buying process, unfortunately. But we went, well, it can't happen again because they've done all the flood mitigation stuff with Wyvernhoe. And uh, it couldn't, it just simply couldn't happen again. But of course, it did. Uh, And of course, that's part of the ongoing legal fight that people have got. And I'm part of that too, as um, as thousands are. Uh, It's been going for 10 years. We're still fighting it and and getting nowhere fast. What were you feeling as the realisation finally set in that your home was going to go under? It was um, it was uh, surreal because you just don't believe that the water could get that high. I mean, even when people visit our house today, they look out and they go, "Seriously, you, you got water in this? You're up so high!" But we did, it, and it reached levels that it hadn't done until you know, 1974, obviously. At what, so, so it was, it was panic stations. Yeah. At what time did you decide to leave and where did you go? Uh, from memory, it was early in the morning. It was still raining. This is the problem. It was the, the rain had not eased up for weeks and it was still raining that morning. And so you just, how do we get out? Um, and we're in a unique situation in that we had river in front of us, rail line behind us, and we were kind of trapped in an island situation as it was. And we were familiar with that over the past. It's no biggie where you'd had that situation and then it went away because it never got any higher than your first, you know, um, just crossing the road kind of thing. Mm. But uh, but this, this was serious. This was then lapping our second retaining wall and uh, luckily I'd already got the car out the, the, uh, the night before. But the morning it all happened, it was just like, grab what you can. just. And we were stuffing suitcases with just the basics, just some clothes. At the end of the day, that's all we had. Because um, the only thing you could do is, for example, your TV set. We just bought a nice big screen TV set and we put it on top of the dining table thinking, oh, that'll be higher than where it was. And of course... That went under. Um, everything did. You've, all your furniture. We had a new lounge suite, only months old, and it it was totally saturated. And uh, there was, everything got wet, mate. Let's face it. Uh, we we were lucky in that our house didn't turn into a submarine like a lot of houses. And when I use that term, I mean our house wasn't totally inundated, but it was so bad. It didn't matter. Yes. Um, how, how many metres up the wall? Oh, up to the light switches, basically. Right. And nothing can prepare you, Walter, for the utter destruction that you see when you open that door for the first time. No, you're absolutely right there. Uh, we tried to catch a glimpse the morning after when things all sort of settled and the sun, it was the most bizarre day the next day after because we'd had to evacuate to uh, uh, the Quest Motel in Ipswich mm-hmm. with Two, two suitcases, that was it. Uh, ourselves, my, myself and my wife, um, our children luckily were already empty nesters and away from home. Um, and, and then you wake up the next day and there's sunshine and it and it's like, oh, this is a normal Queensland day. And then 
you join other people, you, you go across the bridge to see if you can see your home. And the Bremer River was more like um, some lake was huge and the home was partially submerged in that, but we couldn't get a good view of it from where we were, um, even on the, uh, on the bridge. Let's talk about the recovery. It was long, slow, mm. hard, and, and very emotional. Yeah. Once you got into the home, um, how did you plan oh. the next few days? What did you do? Opening that front door was just disgusting, Alan. First of all, the stench. The smell. No one will forget that smell, Walter. No. No, you'll never forget the smell, unfortunately. Um, it's always in your nostrils. So what did you do? What was your plan of attack? Um, well, luckily, some, some great blokes from Queensland Rail came over, the I believe, on the second day we started, but um, really getting stuck in. But the first day, we just we just went, right, let's try and clean up as much of this as we can. And there was, there was no way you clean it up. So, you know, where it went, over the deck, out onto the front lawn until yeah. the contents of our house were as high as our high-set home sitting on our front lawn. Yes. Destroyed. Yep. Yeah, a lifetime of memories. Oh, totally gone. Mm. Uh, and you got no photos. Yep. No, nothing. When the Mud Army turned up, mm. wasn't that amazing? They, they were incredible. It, the, uh, the support we got from the Mud Army was just brilliant, mate. The reaction from the people in recovery mode was, was fantastic. Uh, there was people just coming by. Well, there was our friends. I put a call out via good old Facebook, and a lot of people came around to help us out, people we hadn't seen for years or whatever, and, and just randomly helping us just try and clear the place out. There was, um, on top of that, there was a, a bunch of guys who came along with a a high-pressure hose system, which was great to be able to at least hose once we've got everything out. I think we should put in a thank you there, Walter. I'm pretty sure it would have been the rural fireys. I think they did a lot of that. Yeah, I'm Mm. pretty sure it was. Mm. Yeah, one of the rural brigades came by, and they were fantastic. And uh, and then also our Queensland rail workers. We had a couple of big boys um, clearing out downstairs because it's a high set, but it's just it's not built in underneath, but Mm. still... My entire record collection was gone. Everything I'd been saving for 40 years. Yeah. Once the house was cleaned out, hosed out, you had mm. to wait for it to dry out. So what did you that do was, yeah, to pass the time? That was a process. Mm, mm, it was, especially at, a, at got, a humid time of the year. Yeah, yeah, this is it. We're talking January 2011. It's nice and hot and sticky. Humidity levels are high. Temperatures are high. Uh, so you're working through all that. You all smell like crap, literally. Um, and and uh, you end up, once you've got the basic, back to the basic bones of the house and you've destroyed, you've had to smash your kitchen down because it's falling down anyway. And yes. Your bathroom's the same. Every room in the house, all the cupboards, the built-ins, all destroyed. Um, and you're just back to a shell of a house. Um we were lucky in that we had um, tongue and groove, so it's it's pretty resilient stuff. 
and the and good bones is what they say about yes. this old joint, yes. this old girl. We got professionals in to uh, clean the place, but they didn't know what they were doing either. No one had been confronted by this before, so they were making the mistake of mixing their product with water, and of course that was causing more fungus, more uh, of that on your wall. So when they realised, yeah, don't add the water, well, let's just let's just blast this joint clean, <laughs> and then we'll take it from there. I mean, all your carpets are gone, everything. Exactly. It's just yeah. it's sitting twenty foot high on your front lawn your whole life. So you'd broken the back of the cleanup. Uh, how many months before you were back home? Well, uh, while we were out of the house, uh, the army came around with you know, another big shout out for the uh, army personnel who came around with their big trucks and just took away all the stuff that was our life. Yep. Um, and and uh, took it to the tip. Uh, and then it took, because I was still working uh, on Radio 4BC at the time at night, so I still had to do my day shows, you know, my, my regular gig. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and during the daytime, I was working in the house with a, a, a chippy mate, um, and we spent, and I had to pay him out of my own wage to, to help get the house back on. We, we got bugger all out of the the um, the aid efforts, you know, it was a joke what we got out of it. Um, but uh, we found ourselves in a situation where him and I were working for three months to get this place back up to any sort of livable order. And eventually we got tradies in to do to put a new kitchen in and bathroom and stuff. But between the pair of us, uh, and I'm, mate, I'm a... <laughs> I've got two left hands. <laughs> but I learned a lot. Yes. I learned a lot in January 2011 about construction. I think a lot of people did. Yeah. So you were uh, obviously having to uh, set up home temporarily somewhere with the yes. with the support of friends and uh, and family. Um, well, exactly. Was- at, first, at first we went to a, a friends of my son's place. They were kind enough to put us up in their home. And we'd never even met them before. We knew their son well. But we really hadn't known them. But they put us up in the spare bedroom they had in their uh, home, and uh, we stayed there for a week, and we went, look, this is great. You guys are amazing, but this is not going to be workable long-term while we try and rebuild. Because we know it's 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 going to be, as we said at the time, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. Yes. Um, and, and so then another friend of my wife said, look, I've got a little basement area where you guys can stay and be comfortable with a uh, with a bedroom and a you know a, a living area and a, a kitchenette, um, and so we did. And we were there for the better part of the three months while we were you know fighting to get any sort of um, money from insurance. That was a joke, um, and uh, thankfully. Um, the Senator Nick Xenophon, hopefully none of this will ever happen again because um, everyone should be covered for flood damage if it says so in their policy like it did in ours. And that was a saga and a half for another day. What's your last... Yeah, what's that's, your, <laughs> that's, that's a whole other podcast. It is. What's your lasting memory, Walter? One thing that sticks in your mind. 
walking in that front door and the escape on the morning. Both of those items are deeply etched in our mind and then also seeing everything we own destroyed. Um, well, it's been 10 years. It, it's, it's been still a, long... a deep wound. Oh, yeah, it is. It is for many people and, and very emotional. I know to a lot of other people it's only going to be a footnote in history. Mm. But for the thousands who were involved, you know what we're talking about. Walter Williams, thank you so much for talking to Ipswich today. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Recovery began almost immediately after floodwaters receded. Neighbours helping neighbours, supported by the now famous Mud Army. People, thousands of people, just arrived in flood-affected streets ready to help, like a giant army of worker ants. It was an incredible sight. I know personally of one retired couple from northern New South Wales who hitched up their small van and randomly picked Moores Pocket Road to stop and help. With no power, they parked their van in my mum's driveway and camped for a few days, not only to help clear the mountain of mud and take out a destroyed lifetime of memories to the footpath, they also doubled as security at night in a darkened street with no power. This story was repeated hundreds, if not thousands of times across Ipswich. Then there were the tradies from interstate. Even footy teams wanted to pitch in. They came from everywhere to help with the mammoth task of cleaning and rebuilding. Volunteers also just turned up at various locations to offer free food and drinks to residents and other volunteers working on the cleanup. Multiple health warnings were issued, with residents urged to place all ruined furniture, building waste and other rubbish on the footpath. The streets were jammed with volunteers competing with trucks, so council quickly changed daytime pickups to overnight because of the large mud army helping to clean during the day. At one stage, more than 8,000 truckloads of rubbish passed through landfills in a 24-hour period. Recovery was slow and difficult. There were so many organisations on the front line helping, including SES, Red Cross, Suu Kyi Foundation, Salvation Army, Queensland Police, Queensland Health, all emergency services and hundreds of others. Donations of cash and goods were coming from all over Australia and the world. The trouble was how to coordinate and distribute all this generosity and get it to the people most deserving. Ipswich City Council is not usually in the logistics business, but it had to quickly adapt. Council management and officers went well above and beyond that would be normal operations to make it happen. Not long after floodwaters receded, the old CBD Coles was turned into a makeshift warehouse after being cleared of rotting food and destroyed shop fittings. This happened with the full support of Coles. Systems were put in place to allow donated goods to be picked up by flood-affected residents. The workshops at North Ipswich and several other sites were also used to store bulky items. The city was in the world media spotlight and support was also forthcoming from many places, including businesses and residents of Ipswich, England. This came in the form of cash donations from an appeal launched by the Evening Star newspaper and the Ipswich Building Society in Suffolk. There are thousands of other stories of support, far too many to cover in this podcast, but without this outpouring of love and support, I'm sure many flood-affected residents would not have been able to mentally survive the flood of 2011. 
On the morning of January 11, it was thought initially some 200 properties, not houses inundated, would be affected. In the space of a few hours, flood projections went from minor to moderate, then to major. In Ipswich, approximately 1,500 homes were flooded in livable areas. There were 473 flood-affected businesses, of which 34 either closed or relocated outside Ipswich. A total of $120 million damage was caused to council-owned property, of which there was about $50 million in damage to council-owned roads. Parks and sports fields were badly hit, with colleges crossing reserve all but wiped out. It was finally reopened in full in October 2014, one of the many flood recovery projects jointly funded under the Australian and Queensland Government's Natural Disaster Recovery Arrangements. Ipswich City Council coordinated rebuilding assistance to residents and access to donated materials for up to one year after the flood. The Ipswich flood appeal raised just over $2 million, with $2,700 vouchers distributed in the first year, along with donated fridges, TVs and other goods. 2011 made an indelible mark on everyone who experienced it. That smell of thick mud in homes will never be forgotten. Since then, some planning rules have changed for the better. However, it is exceedingly difficult to undo history. Ipswich, like many other colonial settlements, is built by a river, because in those days, towns were built close to water supplies and river transport for obvious reasons. Here's a little fact. Ipswich will flood again in the future. It is how we prepare for the inevitable that will help minimise personal loss and loss of life. This was highlighted in author Margaret Cook's book, A River with a City Problem, which not only examines the 2011 flood, it also looks at 1893 and 1974. Last year I spoke with Margaret and asked what was the motivation to write the book. I'm always interested in place and I think that comes from my interest in heritage. But um, I started thinking about it at the time not long after the floods when that discussion was going on about the role of Wyvernhoe and how we hadn't managed to stop flooding. And I thought there's a story there about the river came first. The river's always been there. It's actually humans that have come later. And that was the idea of the title. And I thought it was an interesting story to look at that dynamic between nature and humans and see how it could play out in the time of the flood. Well, there are many examples of early white settlement where settlements were made as close as possible to the water source. I'm thinking Gympie, I'm thinking Maribor, and of course I'm thinking Ipswich uh, as a classic example. Are there any measures that can be taken now to minimise that flood risk going forward or is it it's just the way it is? We do have a problem with legacy because of where we've built, but I think we can be careful about two areas. We can stop making it worse. So I think there's a role for town planning in particular to stop to think about where we actually build. There's a very big role for architects and builders to think about the sort of designs we embrace and the building materials we use because some of them can be more resilient than some of the things we choose to use at the moment. Chipboard and plywood are not very good against flood water. Is it possible to undo any elements of poor planning? Yeah, there is. And there's some really exciting work going on in Brisbane about retrofitting some houses. And it's really about changing the materials we use, maybe raising some houses and thinking about softer, more permeable structures around the houses that might soak in some of the water. I think one of the things that the book showed is that um, 
there's a lot of education needed to understand floods. I don't think people actually realise how flood prone that Ipswich actually is. And one of the things I wanted to do was by telling stories is to help make people a bit more aware so that maybe next time we can be a little bit more proactive and get out of the way because I think we're very reactive. You can hear the full interview with Margaret Cook in an earlier podcast published on July 31st, 2020. In the weeks and months after the flood, the issue of insurance became headline news. Policyholders were quickly discovering that not all flood insurance policies were the same. It appeared most policies did not cover riverine or slowly rising waters as part of river flood damage. This was a cruel blow on top of the flood itself. Assistant Federal Treasurer at the time, Bill Shorten, spoke at a public meeting in April 2011 where frustrations overflowed. As you can hear in this ABC News report. My responsibility in the government uh, is in terms of working with the insurance part of Australia in terms of claims and the system. Bill Shorten says he's closer to getting the industry to agree to more clearly worded policies. I've been there 50 years! But that's doing little to quell anger from those who feel they've already been cheated. On that particular day, we had the dam opened at full capacity. We had a wall of water coming down from Grantham. We had 19 inches coming out of the sky at the same time. I would call that a natural disaster, wouldn't you? We are living in sheds. We are living in caravans. And we need help, and we need help now. The meeting soon turned from angry to tragic. I live in a tent. I'm sleeping on a camp stretcher. A friend of the family described the full horror of the circumstances of the young boy and his mother. Tammy and William are living under these bloody tents inside their house, which has been bloody condemned. It's full of sewage. There's blisters of paint on the walls that are popping, that have got bloody mould and sewage water still in them, running out of them. And they have to live in this house. Many of those present held signs attacking their insurance companies. Mr Shorten says they should have been there to face their angry clients. Individual insurance companies, after very clear invitations, uh, chose not to come. Now, did you expect them to? Well, you've got to ask first. An hour into the meeting, a representative from the Insurance Council of Australia finally arrived. There was a small amount of good news by August. One insurance company, RACQ, decided to review more than 200 policies and pay flood claims. The other company that scored very highly with payouts was Suncorp. Following the flood, most policies changed to an opt-out rather than an opt-in for full flood cover, and a much clearer definition of flood cover was implemented. However, many flood-affected properties became uninsurable or had astronomical premiums. In the wake of the Queensland floods, the state government set up a flood commission of inquiry. Community meetings and public hearings were held across the state. 31 days of hearings took place before the commission's interim report was delivered. Ipswich was allocated three of 68 days in the second round of hearings. A third round was held over 10 days in February 2012 to examine allegations of misconduct 
on the part of flood operations engineers at Wyvernhoe Dam. Its findings were released on March 16, 2012 and are available in full online. Ten years on, there is still no final resolution to the flood class action. Mediation continues, with the last hearing being on the 11th of December 2020. This week is a stark reminder of the trauma and loss inflicted by the 2011 flood. It is also a reminder of a lengthy legal process. Finally, on a personal note, I want to thank the many people who rolled up their sleeves and helped clean out and rebuild Mum's place. It was a huge job that took almost six months to complete. You know who you are. I'll never be able to thank you enough for that generosity, compassion and support during those weeks and months after the flood. I know thousands of other Ipswich residents will have similar stories. Special thanks to 7 News and ABC News for additional audio in this podcast. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This podcast is also listener-supported. Please make a once-only gift or regular donation to help keep it online. Just go to ipswichtoday.com.au and click the Donate button at the bottom of the page. You can subscribe for free and share this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio, or play Ipswich Today from your smart speaker. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thanks for listening. From legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode or go to ipswichtoday.com.au.